0: Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Daniel Plotkins on the show. He recently headed up some research that looked at the hip thrust versus squats, and they assessed some strength outcomes and also hypertrophy outcomes, and it was a really, really well done study and very interesting and some great practical take-homes, I think, that Daniel gives the listener. You may have seen it out on social media, seen some hot takes on it, and so I wanted to get Daniel on to give you the real take-home that you can take along for your practice or your own training yourself. We also dig into some other aspects of kind of training at long muscle lengths. What's Daniel's take on that? And I think it was a really fruitful discussion. If you do enjoy the podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode in future, whether that be on YouTube or any other podcast provider. And if you love it as well, give us a review or make sure to have a comment over on YouTube. We appreciate the support. It helps the algorithm. It helps us grow and every like, comment share that sort of thing is highly appreciated guys but without further ado let's get into the show hi guys welcome back to the revive stronger podcast i'm your host as always steve hall and today i have daniel plotkin on the show or dp or Dan, uh, we're talking off air. I was like, I, I automatically go to shortening people's name, and I just go to Dan. It's like people just—I uh, was Steven to my family, and now I'm Steve, like to everyone else. Even like changed my Facebook name. So, how's it going, Dan? How's how are things on your end? All is well. Yeah, I'm super excited to be on
1: the show, and feel free to use whatever name you want. Shorten it, make it
0: longer. Uh, your call. and people might have heard your name recently because and I would say I say recently because Brett Contreras, is a huge name in our kind of evidence-based like little niche I guess uh, with so many followers and you were the lead author of a study that he helped fund and uh, Dan himself is a PhD student studying molecular and applied muscle physiology at Auburn University and you looked at hip thrusts versus back squats which is kind of been done in the past but maybe not super well and so i know brett really wanted to do something do it justice basically to investigate this because as we're speaking off air people seem to have a, a really strong allegiance to the squat i certainly did for a time where i was like not so much for the glutes but like for the quads i was like this is the best quad builder ever and i'm like i kind of moved away from that a little bit because you realize there's a lot more going on than just like i don't know certain exercises being king uh, there's a lot of things that go into program design and things like this but i wanted to get you on to kind of discuss this study kind of give people an understanding of how you ran it why you ran it that way and then also the like the methods and things like this that sometimes people skip over because they just look at the like the results and they just read the, the conclusions there. And then also what maybe your, uh, practical take homes would be. So I guess starting from the top, what, or, or actually, first of all, is there anything else you want to let the listeners know about yourself or before going into this study, like anything in that regard? Yeah. So, uh, in terms of a
1: little background on me, I started getting obsessed with fitness when I started wrestling. In high school and so manipulating body composition, all that kind of stuff was sort of, you know, par for the course when it came to wrestling and just wanted to be jacked. every little kid wants to you know looks at superheroes and stuff like that and it's just like I want to look like that so it sort of went hand in hand with trying to be like good at combat sports and good at you know the the archetypal little kid who has a chip on his shoulder who wants to be you know big strong and fight well and all that kind of stuff and then I got really really obsessed when you know later on when I got more into really wanting to be a good wrestler and stuff like that and manipulating weight getting as strong as possible getting um uh as fast as possible, all that kind of stuff. And then that sort of parlayed into becoming a trainer. So at around 18 years old, I started training people. I'm now 27, so really long time uh, training people. And then luckily I was in New York. So I started with more clinical science and then being in New York and having Dr. Brad Schoenfeld nearby, I did my master's with uh, Brad. And that's when, you know, I really, really, really dived into hypertrophy science. I was already obsessed with it, but then, you know, he's like the most passionate, like I probably haven't met anyone more passionate about hypertrophy science for as long as he has. So yeah, I did my master's with him. I was the first master's student to graduate out of his program. And then I wanted to get into like, all right, we know sort of like practical what to do for hypertrophy, but I wanted to mesh that with all right what's going on at the molecular level while also considering the practical and sort of marry the two and there's very few labs that do that many labs do one or the other really well but Auburn University where I am Dr. Roberts he does a really good job of trying to sort of marry the two and say all right what can we ask from a practical standpoint while also getting biopsies and looking at what's happening at the molecular level how does muscle get regulated and so on so yeah super excited to
0: be at my new lab. Very cool. Yeah. When I was reading over, when I was looking at what you were like kind of studying for, I was like, oh, I actually hadn't heard, I don't know if any other guests have been studying that. I was like, oh, molecular, like actually, yeah, I I hadn't heard many doing that. So that helps me realize why I felt that way, because like you said, it's kind of uh, a bit unique in that sense, not as readily available. I'm not
1: sure if uh, a while back you had Dr. Cody Hahn on, and so he came from the same exact lab. So he graduated as soon as I came in.
0: So yeah that's awesome so now are you still wrestling now or are you just bodybuilder powerlifter just general lifter <laughs> yeah
1: i'm trying to get as jacked as possible um not necessarily to step on stage just like that's my primary goal but i do jujitsu now so after cool. wrestling i just started doing jiu-jitsu and now i'm sort of obsessed with jiu and sometimes that many times that gets in the way of bodybuilding but I I love them both enough that I'm willing to make the sacrifice, and I'm not stepping on stage or anything like that. So, um, not not a recommendation I would give like do jujitsu and bodybuilding in tandem, but
0: uh you can definitely make it work with the right tweaks. For sure, yeah, yeah it's uh, that seems to be. There's quite a lot of guys. It was always if you do bodybuilding, you also do like powerlifting alongside, or maybe powerlifters get into bodybuilding. It seems a lot of people are now going into those like. MMA, the mixed martial arts. And I don't know, Dr. Mike, knows. maybe he popularized Brazilian jiu-jitsu for a lot of people. It's not something I've ever done, but I see people doing it. I'm like, oh, man, maybe, maybe I'm missing out. That might be quite fun. But also I'm like, <laughs> no, I can't let any of my gains possibly diminish. I need every little bit I can get. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it sort of goes hand in hand with what
1: happened with the study. I actually, it was my first, I wouldn't call it a bad injury, but it was not, amazing so my lcl somebody like whacked into it really hard while we were rolling like a nearby group and so for the first like couple of weeks of the study i was like on crutches trying to teach people how to do lifts and stuff like that so it was pretty bad but luckily it was only like a few weeks and then crutches came off but yeah if it's hard to run a randomized controlled trial doing it on crutches for the first like week or so especially um, when you're trying to teach new people lifts was, was very hard, but luckily I could, I could get some movement in. So it it was okay, but yeah, do not recommend if that's your main goal. So I'm, I'm definitely with you. Don't don't, if you're trying to get as jacked as humanly possible, maybe don't add
0: a sport that could mess you up alongside it yeah, for sure you've successfully put me off now <laughs> i can't be dealing with an injury i need i need my leg training and <laughs> any bit of muscle i can get on those so and talking about leg training i guess that's a good lead way into the study then um so yeah i'd love to hear you, you might even have a different angle you will kind of want to start with but like the objectives of the study is kind of where i was thinking to start what were you looking at what kind of uh, were the things that you were looking to measure as you went through this yeah so originally the study
1: was actually going to be something different. So I wanted to try to isolate the length question originally. Um, So we came to Brett and sort of proposed a study that was more isolated to whether muscle lengths equal or longer muscle lengths equal more hypertrophy. So it was, I think, originally two exercises per group. It was going to be RDL, front foot elevated and 45 degree hyper. Um, And that could have been in trained individuals because two exercises and, you know, enough volume where they could grow a whole lot, even with whatever volumes they were coming into the study with. But then one thing led to another, Brad Schoenfeld got involved and considering the other evidence that existed, that was, you know, some nefarious activity going on there. This is also really popular question squat versus hip thrust you know you see it all over the internet all this one like people strongly in one camp or the other people strongly in a camp that one exercise does nothing for that muscle group so like tons of people saying hip thrust do nothing for the glutes tons of people saying squats do nothing for the glutes so uh, we knew it was going to be a popular question and a question people wanted answered. You know, every YouTube comment section, you know, underneath squats were zipped and so on. So we decided to go with the more popular question that doesn't isolate, you know, the length question as well. So that's sort of how it came to fruition. And then if you want, I can sort of jump into what we did, how we did it, and so on. Yeah, yeah so, for sure. so we took, we ended up with 34 individuals and we randomized them to squat only and hip thrust only. These were untrained individuals and we had them initially do three sets the first week. So we didn't want to smash them early on. A lot of the decisions that we made were to try to sort of Silence the naysayers and that like all oh, the squats are more fatiguing exercise the squats you know harder to learn all that kind of stuff so initially we started with pretty low volumes so that way we didn't smash these untrained individuals so during the initial session it was one time per week for just three sets of each exercise and during that same session we Put EMG electrodes on the upper mid and lower glute as well as the glute med and then they did their 10 rms in each respective exercise based on the three rms that we tested with during pre-testing and after they were done with the 10 rms they did two more sets and finished off that first session and then after that for the second week and all the rest of the weeks it was two times per week so second week was four sets per session and then third through sixth week was five sets per session two times per week and then the last seven through nine weeks so the last three weeks was six sets per session so 12 sets total so not smashing them even by the end of the study by any stretch of the imagination so in terms of the findings we found let's go with which muscles didn't grow first and then we can go with sure. which muscles Grew and then maybe some conceptual takeaways. So, in terms of which muscles didn't grow in either group, the hamstrings didn't grow in either group. And this is probably like the fourth or fifth study to show this in the squat. And the mechanism makes sense as you go into the eccentric, the hamstrings being lengthened and shortened at the same time, and then vice versa on the concentric. The same is true for the hip thrust, but having some evidence in the hip thrust particularly because people sort of feel it in the hamstring a little bit sometimes and so on uh, is really good to know. So the practical takeaway there is that if you want hamstring growth, don't expect it from either of those exercises. Another really interesting interesting thing that we found was the glute medius and minimus didn't grow very much from either exercise. So if you want more rounded out, um hypertrophy of the lower body doing some abduction some abduction exercises to target those muscle groups is probably a good idea and sort of by the same token we found that in both groups the lower glute grew more than the upper and middle glute so both groups had the same hypertrophy for the glute in terms of pre-post, there were no meaningful differences between groups. But when you compared like the aggregate of both groups, the lower glute grew more than the upper and middle. So the upper and middle group glute grew by about 10% pre-to-post and the lower glute grew by about 20% percent pre to post so about double. So I think sort of along the same lines of the glute, med and min doing some ABduction exercises would probably be a little bit more specific to the upper and middle, although they grew very well in both of those exercises, getting some extra work in that is in a different plane is probably a really good idea. And then, um, in terms of the thigh, so quad and adductor, the quad and adductor grew more, much more by about double in the squat group. So kind of expected, you know, um, quads and uh, adductors are hit really hard in the squat and not very hard in the hip thrust. Surprisingly, they did grow a little bit in the hip thrust. So there wasn't no growth. So you, you shouldn't expect none. But if you want a more isolated stimulus to the glute, I would go with a hip thrust. If you want more like a shotgun, every muscle is going to grow type thing, you, you could go with the squat. So I think... That's a really good practical takeaway for many people that just want glute growth. They can go with a more, you know, precise exercise like a thrust or a kickback or a multi hip or something along those lines. Yeah,
2: that makes. I think those a are.
1: Se- sorry. Yeah. Go. On. I think those are the, probably the main practical takeaways. If you want, I can jump into some sort of like conceptual stuff or if you have any questions.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, so obviously you measured out kind of the hypertrophy that each exercise gave you. You also mentioned EMG and some people have tried to use that to like forecast hypertrophy. How how did that kind of fall for you guys? Yeah, that's a great point. So I always forget to say the EMG outcome. Cool. So
1: yeah, we looked at it in a few ways, but the two main ways is that you can compare amplitudes between individuals both mean and peak amplitudes and then you can compare them by region so within one individual if they got more amplitude in the upper glute would they expect more gro- growth in the upper glute and so on and we found that no matter how you slice it it didn't predict growth so it sort of confirms what you know Andrew Vygotsky and a lot of other people were saying that Excitation doesn't equal activation. So just because the nervous system is sending a signal to the muscle doesn't necessarily mean that there's more overlap of fibers and so on, because once fatigue sets in, what's going on at the muscle level doesn't necessarily jive what's, what's going on at the nervous system level. And then you have to layer on a whole bunch of other things. What position is the lift in? Is the conformation of the muscle different and therefore you're getting a higher signal um, there's just a lot of so length. If if the muscle is at longer muscle lengths, then you usually expect less nervous system activation. But you know we know that there's higher hypertrophic signaling there. So there's a whole bunch of things that you have to correct for. But the issue with having to correct for them is that you end up overlaying what you already think is going to happen and what you think is happening at the muscular level, to what you're seeing with the EMG, to the point where, what is the utility of the EMG? So what I always try to ask people when they use it as a tool is, when will it change your mind? When will you think something and then use EMG and say, oh, because I saw that reading, I'm now not going to use this exercise for this muscle and so on. And almost never have I gotten an answer that is convincing in that regard. Usually people are overlaying what they already think with what they're seeing with the EMG. Oh, this happened because of this. This happened because of that. You're seeing a higher amplitude because of this specific thing. So until we get to the point where we can find a context where EMG is actually predictive and validate it in that way I'm very skeptical of findings that only are looking at EMG in isolation and trying to make predictions from there.
0: It's nice when science agrees with one another because it kind of builds us closer mm-hmm. to the truth and closer to an answer. When you just see papers all contradicting one, on, one another, it's like, ah, we haven't really got like direction here. So it's nice to have another paper that's kind of confirming what we feel like we already had good answers on. So that's great. And this is maybe an outside the box question. I was just thinking about it. Uh, and I don't know if this works in the context, but does do you think, mm-hmm. and, and I, know, I think you asked actually some of the um, people lifting which exercise they felt the glutes more in do you think does sensation and emg readings do they correlate at all so uh, i've heard people say like sensation isn't something you should pay attention to does that correlate with emg like those sensations
1: yeah um sensation is kind of a complicated one because there's sensation of a stretch there's sensation in that shortened crampy position there's sensations that are sort of uh synergists that are kind of mushing together sometimes like if you take like if you go like super sumo uh deadlift and then you contract really hard at the end you have just like a whole bunch of muscles sort of and the the femur sort of like pressing out on muscles and uh uh whatnot so i think that's a that's a good question i doubt they would correlate very well in every context but because of that co-contraction and the shortened position having a higher EMG signal. I think a lot of the time it would probably, but there's just like correlating with hypertrophy. I'm sure there's going to be many times where they don't go hand in hand and where you can sort of use one and not the other. So I think it's going to be hard. It's going to be an uphill battle to try to one, get those two to correlate. And then whether those two actually matter for hypertrophy is another really not so solid line. So I think ignoring sensation is probably a bad idea in terms of certain muscles. It's pretty obvious when they're getting activation, especially in isolation movements. It's also obvious when you can feel the stretch in certain muscles, so I think ignoring that and sort of not having that as sort of a stopping point or a point you're trying to reach is probably a bad idea, but using anything in isolation is probably also a very bad idea, which I think jives with the outcome of the study. Many people were taking length in isolation and saying, oh, if the muscle is in a lengthened position, it's automatically getting more stimulus, so we didn't isolate the length question, but many people, just because the glute is in a more lengthened position at the bottom of the squat, we're saying it has to be the better exercise without considering the fact that the quads may be the limiter at the bottom of the squat, or maybe the adductors working really hard and so on. So looking at any one variable in isolation
0: is probably a bad idea. So yeah, really good yeah. question. Yeah, I think that's really well stated. I think uh, yeah, I think just in general, like, you can't, I don't know if I'm thinking, I always use the example of someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he's obviously notorious for chasing the pump. It's like, if you just chase the <laughs> pump, probably going to lead you in the wrong direction. But similarly, uh, again, the other person I always use is like someone like Mike who who is just all about load and high intensity. It's like, if you just train, like, tr- sorry, chase training as hard as possible probably going to lead you in the wrong direction. So you you have to like take every variable into consideration. So I think that was really well stated by yourself. And yeah, this is something to obviously discuss is, obviously the glutes grew like the same pretty much with both exercises. And you mentioned kind of training at long muscle lengths. People might be thinking, oh, so do the glutes not respond like other muscle groups to kind of training at long muscle lengths? What were your kind of concluding thoughts? Yeah, so
1: I don't think that you could make that
0: assumption based
1: on the specific two exercises that we used, because as i mentioned there's a whole bunch of other muscle groups that are working really hard at the bottom of the squat that could be limiting the output so it could be that your quads are closer to failure at the end of a set and you're stopping because of the quads and your you know um glutes are three reps away from failure four reps and so on so looking at Just length and isolation when we didn't do that would definitely be a fool's errand. But it also, by the opposite token, let's say the squat blew the hip thrust out of the water, then you could probably, and it's you always wanna cautiously make mechanistic inferences from studies that didn't actually measure mechanisms. But if the study blew the hip thrust out of the water, you could say, even in the context where all of those synergists need to be considered, the stretch is so important that it can be a little bit further away from failure and all that kind of stuff. So it confirms that the stretch mediated hypertrophy bit is probably not the the Holy grail to the point where it supersedes every single other variable. And you could just like put any muscle at a longer length and not consider synergists and not consider what are the main limiters and so on. So I don't think it says absolutely nothing about muscle length, but it for sure is not an isolated muscle length study. Um, and then now we have to consider new research. So I'm not sure if you saw, uh, Brad's recent post. So By, the, unpublished the study. Et al. yeah.
0: I was going yeah. to bring that one up.
1: Yeah, so they took yeah a group of individuals and they had them on the multi hip, and so they
0: either started at ninety I, degrees. Yeah, sorry, sure. Daniel, uh, I don't know if it's just what is the multi hip? Like I heard, I've heard this discussed, and so I'm like, I? I'm just not picturing it. And so for anyone listening who's also like me and feels clueless, to, <laughs> what, I don't know if I just don't know what the multi hip is. Can you describe it? I don't yeah, know if it's easy so to describe really <laughs> hard to describe machines but so like
1: uh if you were to imagine a rotating arm and then you could put either your knee or the they actually did like the ankle i guess and you're just pushing down with your Um, You're going into extension. So very similar to, I guess, the the closest thing that I can describe that definitely isn't this, but the assisted pull-up, if you were to just push down on that and go into hip extension, using, you know, yeah
0: as soon as you said it was hard to describe i was like i bet it's that machine that i've seen like multiple times where it's just yeah. hip extension and exactly uh, i just i it's such a rare actually machine to see in gyms at least in my experience i've never been to a gym i don't think ever maybe they had it at dash gym but i don't I'm not too fussed about training the glutes so i'm not looking for the multi-hip extension machine but i know exactly the one you're talking about it kind of the action almost looks like a glute kickback type of uh, thing or um, something like that but yeah it's a it's a you did a good job of describing a hard machine, but I know exactly the one you mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the one for sure. Uh, I think one one other person asked me to describe it
1: recently, and I did a really bad job. Hopefully, I did slightly better this time, but if any of the listeners want to just look it up, and then so that way they can get the context of what we're talking about. Yeah. So, yeah, they took individuals, and they used a straight leg, which if you're trying to isolate the glute, you wouldn't have used a straight leg position, but you could still make inferences because it, it is a lot more isolated so they had one group do start at 90 degrees of hip flexion and then go down to 45 degrees of hip flexion so partial at the more length and position of both the hamstring and the glute and then they had the other group start at 90 degrees and then go all the way down to zero so not full hip extension but more hip extension and so this is unpublished and not only is it unpublished but it is like a poster presentation. Uh To my knowledge, it seems like that's what it was at a conference. Uh They yeah, presented it as abstract. a poster. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, so an abstract. So definitely not something that we're, you know, we haven't read the methods yet and all that kind of stuff. But if these findings, you know, if there's nothing super weird about the methods, it does, it's pretty strong evidence. It is one study, but it is pretty strong evidence that the glute, benefits from longer muscle lengths and it's not super surprising considering almost every single other muscle measured has been neutral to positive in the longer muscle lengths direction. So people that were going crazy about me not being like, I was not thinking that the study would be interpreted as a length question as much as it has been. So the backlash on that was definitely kind of weird to me. But now that we have this study, it sort of takes the heat. I'm very glad this abstract came out in very short order, because then yeah. it is a more isolated way to look at this. I hope you know it gets published very quickly and we can see, you know, the methods and whatnot. But based on limited evidence, I would say every muscle that we've measured benefits from longer muscle length training or is at least neutral to positive in every context that's been tested. The reason I'm fairly comfortable saying that is because even though it's limited evidence and many of it is in untrained individuals, much of it is coming from one lab and so on. If you put your coach's hat on, worst case scenario, you'll have a neutral outcome. Right. So like, let's say these don't pan out and you've biased more of your training toward longer muscle lengths. Worst case scenario, you've created a situation where you got the same outcome. There's there's been no negative studies where longer muscle lengths were clearly worse for growth. So I'm fairly comfortable making the recommendations on, you know, I would say not limited, but fairly limited evidence because the downside isn't very high. So.
0: Hopefully that makes sense. How much is um, Milo paying you? (laughs) That's just, (laughs) it's going to be a bad joke. That's going to come to bite people. uh, That's going to bite Milo. And they ask all of us probably slightly at some point where people are like, hey, is Milo actually paying people? Like, is this real? Uh, So yeah, I thought that the only thing I saw, and I I might be off base here, I saw it was five by 10 at 70% of one rep max and it was full ROM versus the length and partial. And so my only thoughts were if they were doing the same load for the same reps, one was length and partial, one full ROM, then one of them might be nearer failure than the other one. In terms of like length Mm -hmm. and partials, because it's like not constant tension, but there's no relief in terms of the short position maybe being less fatiguing. And so you kind of maybe, I don't know, maybe you could even argue that's creating, generating fatigue uh, that's going into it. But when I think about it and I do like a a leg press, I've done leg press partials because I'm crazy and uh, Milo gave me some cash uh so anyway (laughs) i can't do as many reps because it's like i don't get that breather up at the top almost where it's i guess you could almost say it's like similar to like rest pause it's not but you get that kind of uh, or a hack squat at the top you get that little bit of a breather you can come down i can actually do more reps with more load with the full ROM versus partial so it's the only question i I kind of thought i don't know if it applies here i don't know if you have any thoughts on that that the partial group could have been closer to failure (laughs) there yeah, so I think if I'm understanding you
1: correctly, you are questioning whether... So I totally get the sort of rest-pause thing, and I'll, I'll get to that, but are you questioning whether the 70% of 1RM was with full ROM for both groups?
0: Or No, so I don't know if they, for the partial group and the length and uh, Sorry, the full ROM and partials, if they did 5 by 10 with the same weight for both protocols yeah
1: so it wouldn't have been the same weight is okay. what i'm trying to underline because this group and they also sort of explicitly said it in the abstract is they base it on the rms for i don't know i don't remember exactly uh what rm they used but they would test you in partial and they would test you in Perfect. full and then base those percentages on that and they've done they did that for the tricep study they did that for the hamstring study so um I doubt that they would, you know, uh cool. Change I must that, have change it. that up too much. Yeah, so they did it either cool. specific to the exercise or specific to the ROM, and that's super important. Like studies that didn't do that makes you sort of like exactly what you're saying. It makes you question like how close was one to failure and so on. But yeah, it seems like I'm pretty confident based on their wording that they based it on the specific range of motion. But you've been bring up a great point with even with that being said and this is something that i have two like very very minor issues with the evidence on this that group seems to be doing really really good work but we can't find which machines they're using so knowing the resistance curve would be helpful in this instance because let's say the multi hip is like a super weird multi hip where it's like super unloaded at the bottom versus kind of unloaded at the bottom and so on. Are they getting kind of a rest pause situation um, in, in one context and not the other? And so I don't think we can make strong claims either way, because you could actually make a decent argument for either one, constant tension versus like slight rest pause, getting more effective reps. How is that going to affect subsequent sets and so on? So I don't think we have any level of sort of uh, clarity on which one would actually be better so regardless of whether we knew the resistance curve i don't think that we would be able to make super strong claims but it would give us context and context is super important when you're making interpretations and then further interpretations when new studies come out and so on the second thing and this is just like an important thing in science when one lab is doing a lot of the really good work. Like they're using MRI and they're they're kind of doing all the right things in terms of isolating this length question. You want other labs to replicate the work. Like science is about replication, but a lot of times about replication in different, you know, labs and countries and all that kind of stuff. That way you're you can be a lot more confident in the results. Um, so I think those two things are something that people should just keep in mind when they're making. Um, claims and interpreting signs.
2: Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with a plan? Then get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger.
0: I think that was very well said and it sounds like you're quite on board with I guess uh, thinking about training at long muscle lengths a little bit more within kind of people's programming when they're specifically going for hypertrophy how have you I don't know if you coach people still or uh, obviously you train yourself are you how far have you taken it what does your kind of training look like at the moment I'd be interested to hear about that yeah so I surprisingly don't do for myself A whole lot
1: of you know i i choose exercises that cover my bases but i don't do partials as much currently um that's just like i think the bro in me doesn't want to get fully fully on board just yet um the only time i do partials in my current program although i might consider them in later programs is i do partials with the cable with uh lateral raises and then I'll do partials at the top right after. So I'm playing around with the idea that doing separate lengthened partials and then separate shortened partials afterward might be a good idea rather than doing one or the other, you know, separately or even within the same exercise because you can make the argument like you can set up the cable that it's super unloaded at the end, but you're still you know, getting a whole bunch of range of motion that is not, you know, no, no tension. And so playing around with having like one that's super biased toward the other and just getting massive pumps from like doing like one and then the other just feels super good. And I doubt I'm losing anything because of that. But in terms of incorporating in clients training, I've definitely played around with it in, you know, different positions, uh, particularly for like the lats and, um, a lot of, uh, I think, considering length in general has been a slight shift in in how I sort of make decisions, I considered it a little bit less before, but not a ton of partials just yet in most people's programs, just because I think that you can usually choose the right exercise that biases that position without having to necessarily go to partials a lot of the time.
0: Yeah. I think that well describes where at least I felt the most benefit is basically for, for exercises where you can't make it biased to lengthened, like pulling, like lap movements a lot of the time, like doing the partials in that situation just feels so natural. Whereas I can tell you leg press doesn't feel natural not to lock out, but not to say that feeling natural yeah. and your general, my bodybuilding intuition is leading me down the right path, but sometimes it can, uh, I'm not sure. And uh, theoretically it's, you're getting more bang for your buck with doing it for something like you said, the pulling work where you're weakest, where it's short. So you're missing out on plenty of reps if you kind of cut it there. Yeah, for sure. And
1: I think another thing to consider is how much volume are you doing? So I think if you're veering on the side of lower volumes, I think getting some partial work in and biasing more of your volume toward the lengthened position makes sense to me but there's some people that are doing like specialization phases and that like really want to glow their glutes, for example, that I think biasing like 70 to 80% of your volume to the lengthened position in a context where you're doing like 30 to 35 sets per week might be a bad idea. Recovering from that is probably going to be a tall order, but including, you know band work and thrusts and kickbacks alongside that length and work at those very high set amounts <clears throat> I think could make sense whether that actually pans out whether you need that volume or whether there's an additive effect from the mechanisms is definitely an open question but when you get people that are super super motivated that want to just absolutely smash that muscle and you know they're used to those high volumes I question whether, Like people talk about the U shaped curve a lot, but the chances of it being a U seems very unlikely, meaning that if a precipitous drop off, like I would expect it to be like most bang for your buck early on, then less bang for your buck, but still, you know, more growth, then a flattening for a decent while before the drop off. I wouldn't expect like you to go from, 15 to 20 sets and you start losing muscle at that 20 set amount, you'd probably just not gain more, you know? I could totally be wrong, but it doesn't really make sense from a physiological standpoint that the body's like, ah, you know, a little bit more and you're, you're just screwed kind of thing. So having them smash those muscles and being cognizant of the fact that doing a bunch of long length work might limit their recovery, then including more short position maybe make it more 50
0: 50 in that context yeah. rather than sort of 70 30 that's really interesting i haven't really i haven't mm-hmm. spoken about the relationship of like muscle growth with volume for a while particularly mm-hmm. not in any depth but particularly that kind of the inverted U, like you said I, mean, I haven't spoken about that and i haven't heard anyone talk about it not being that way so thinking about it being a plateau so that's very interesting i don't know if I have any questions surrounding it, apart from it's an interesting <laughs> idea to think about. I'd probably need someone else to, on who maybe strongly feels like it's the inverted you and <laughs> would have some kind of uh, ways to contest you there. Uh, and it's a it's a great kind of thought process in terms of. I guess it's kind of coming down to the stimulus to fatigue trade-off of long muscle length training. Mm. And where's the sweet spot there? It's kind of similar, especially with Zach Robinson and his kind of recent meta that came out in terms of like training closer to failure seems to promote more growth. But then what's the SFR trade-off? Do we do everything to failure or actually do we find a sweet spot a bit further away where we can maybe do more volume and get better growth that way? It's like, it's the unanswerable question at the moment. (laughs) Like maybe just training long muscle length, partials all the way to failure like you don't need to do much and you grow your best (laughs) We, we just don't know at the moment i guess yeah for sure and i'm not sure that we will ever know
1: with the level of clarity that we want to on an individual level you you might be able to say on the group level in some context but there's so many variables that come together that modifying one might change how the others respond and so on so You can't run every single randomized controlled trial with every single iteration, every single population. So we're just never going to have the answers, which is why I think if the field wants to go, and I don't know if this is possible, but if the field wants to go in sort of an individual direction, we have to start thinking about proxies, things that can predict growth. Because... That's really the only way I can see making decisions on an individual level. You you take a marker, you do a measurement in a specific individual with a specific exercise, rep range, set configuration, and so on. And then say, okay, for you, it makes sense to do this and that. And for this person, it does not. But we're so far away from that. It's crazy. There's like, I want to say 10 potential surrogates, you know, or 10 potential proxies that all have super weak and conflicting evidence. And I'm really skeptical that one would do it justice just based on the mechanisms and all the variables that go into it. So it might have to be a combination of proxies. So yeah, it's a super, super, super hard question to answer, but the only way I can sort of see an individualized approach that we can have like good answers for is if we have some sort of tool that can
0: make prescriptions on an individual level. Is that where you're, are you kind of coming from the basis of like just muscle growth is so slow that to, and there's so many variables that are going on in the mix of things you, it's hard to be confident, especially as someone more advanced, like whatever's leading to that outcome is because of like this specific change you've made and some of those shorter term proxies or things that might be correlated with growth could give you a better decision-making kind of tool. Is that along the right lines?
1: Yeah, I think uh, what I'm trying to say is that the tools that we currently have is exactly what you're saying. We're like, usually you're using like performance as a metric and other things that I think definitely shouldn't be ignored. Um, Like if you're, you know, weights are going down week to week, you're like, all right, I'm doing something wrong, right? So there's just the level of sensitivity that those measures give you are not very high. So you could, for example, make a very good argument that you want to get stronger at a really slow pace and get the the volume just right for hypertrophy where you're improving, but you're actually improving more slowly rather than like dropping down the volume and then in improving strength wise more quickly. So like what well, the answers to those questions are, you know, very unknown and and how to use load and all that kind of stuff and how that fits into the equation is unknown. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that a tool where, for example, let's let's take some of the proxies that are currently out there. So EMG, we found out, you know, not a, a super useful tool to uh, or at least in the context that we looked at it, right? But let's say ultrasound and uh muscle swelling, if you could take an individual, have them go through a session in a specific way, put the ultrasound on and say, okay, there's more swelling at the muscle and that correlates with hypertrophy well, then we might have something that's a tool that we can use on uh sort of week by week or you know meso by meso basis where we can have some level of predictive capabilities that is a bit more sensitive than what we currently have so there's you know all the things that have been looked at uh some harder to measure than others but there's muscle blood flow there's ultrasound and the the swelling there's androgen receptor density, there's satellite cell proliferation, there's like, so all of these things that maybe in some context would be more predictive, but other concept, uh, other contexts wouldn't be predictive is, you know, like it's a super hard problem to solve. Because if you sort of think about hypertrophy, hypertrophy is, uh, it's not an outcome where it's like super obvious things are going in the right direction, like strength. Like if there's more load on the bar, you know something's going right. But with hypertrophy, not only do you not know whether things are going in the right direction, but sometimes, but I sort of think about it mechanistically. It could be that the bottleneck for you is different than the bottleneck for another person mechanistically. So whatever measurement tool we use might correlate on average with hypertrophy. Let's say we find a a decent tool. It could be that you lack the amount of necessary capillaries to facilitate growth but another person lacks the amount of androgen receptors and another person lacks the ability to upregulate ribosomes and so on so whether that's whether it's true across the board what the bottleneck is for a person is also a super open question so all of this stuff not practical at all for your listener but hopefully it sort of inserts that like these are super complicated problems that um are going to be hard to disentangle yeah.
0: mechanistically. Yeah. Those are, yeah, those. I'm glad you kind of went through some of the proxies. They're very much like uh, measurable, objective kind of proxies. Uh, I and you'll very much be aware of some of the ones. Some, and I, I like to use some of these with my own training in terms of the proxies, like uh, local muscle fatigue, disruption, perturbation, uh, the pump, swelling, type of thing. Uh, I find those to be useful, and it's like if I don't have those, what do I have? Uh, and uh, you might be. I don't know if you already know, but Jake Remett from Data Driven Strength. We just released the podcast this weekend, so if you haven't uh, heard it, uh, then he's doing his PhD and he's actually looking into using these proxies, those ones I mentioned, uh, to autoregulate training. I think he's doing like a bicep curl, one arm's doing kind of using those to autoregulate, the other ones I think just training at a static volume. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in that study and if there's like any like and then we have a little bit of science to say there's some credence to using these proxies to try and manipulate variables versus just it's kind of a bit a bit bro science if that makes sense like that's how probably the bros thought about their training to some extent but i like your objective ones because then it's like you can't really (laughs) the pump is somewhat subjective (laughs) yeah for sure and then
1: yeah it, it even gets yeah more complicated than that yeah uh i wonder if they maybe if they could get an ultrasound on the individuals and correlate whether they believed that the pump was greater in the exercise. And that also sort of correlated with what happened at the level. But then you get into like, how much is the ultrasound actually, you know, measuring what, what we think it's measuring and so on. So it gets more complicated, but I think that would be a super cool addition to maybe even the first session. It would be really it would be a huge hassle to do it, you know, multiple times, but just the first session, what they think has the better pump and then get the ultrasound on their bicep, which is pretty easy to do, actually. So, yeah, that'd be super cool. They do really good stuff,
0: data, data-driven strength. I, I really enjoy their their content. Yeah, the guys are pumping it out from Mike Zordos' lab. It's great to see, and uh, and for yourself too. Like, it's great to see some of the younger kind of generation come through because I guess there's we have some of the like the old dogs, like Mike Zordos. Not that he's old, but like Brad Schoenfeld, (laughs) a little bit older. But like these guys are like bringing through you guys, which is awesome to like keep this going, keep the interest there, give us get us closer to the truth, which is is amazing. Uh, Just to kind of um jump back to the topic of squat versus hip thrust Mm -hmm. I want to make sure we get the practical take-homes for the listeners because I don't think we necessarily touch on that so I'd love to hear what from this paper what as a practitioner as well what are your practical take-homes from this
1: yeah so I think I I covered like the main ones in terms of which muscles didn't grow which muscles did grow Um, another thing that I didn't necessarily touch upon exactly was that you probably want to do both at some point in your training, in terms of like both can definitely fit in very well. But if you wanted to do neither one, I'd be totally happy with you and I wouldn't care at all. And I think you can have an amazing program without either one. I can, I think you can do very specific squat patterns that you don't need a barbell squat and I think you can do very specific hip extension patterns that aren't necessarily a thrust and you would you would not miss out on a whole lot but variation and people being motivated by numbers and all that kind of stuff makes it so that avoiding them entirely and never having them be in someone's program you know might be a mistake so I think that's another practical takeaway that I sort of wanted to cover and I think one thing that I've seen that maybe is less of a practical takeaway, but more like how people interpret research is that they overlay what they already believe onto a study. So many people were making it seem as though if people didn't go ass to grass, like hamstring to calf, that they automatically couldn't grow their glute optimally. But even that assumption is a very big assumption. Just because a muscle, I mean, just because a limb is moving through a certain range doesn't mean the muscle is getting more lengthened there. So you could very easily envision that you get a rounding of the pelvis that's either visually or non-visually apparent that doesn't create it actually shortens the glute. So... Um, There's a whole bunch of things that become more complicated when you try to make sort of strong mechanistic speculations. But yeah, I'm not sure if you wanted me to like re-go over some of the other stuff that we sort of went through, like abduction and
0: hamstring and all that kind of stuff. But I think those were
1: probably the main. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, I guess, just like the summary of don't throw one of them out of your program. And again, even just the suggestion of like there's other ways to achieve like similar results from these exercises with other exercises. And uh, you kind of mentioned it before in terms of just the psychology of the lifter too is like a, a big mm-hmm. component of things. Like if you enjoy a movement, like you're gonna get more from it. If you believe that it's gonna produce something, possibly yeah, that sure. even will come into it as well. And yeah, I guess uh, the only other thing is, uh, you you mentioned this in the results, really, because like, obviously hamstrings, if you want hamstrings to grow, you're going to want to find something that lo- lengthens and shortens them. But also I think this is where I see big kind of credence to the hip thrust is if you want just glute growth, which there's many people who want just the glutes to grow and not the hamstrings, not the the, the quads. Oh, well, the quads grew a little bit, but maybe in, I don't know if it would be fair to say in advanced lifters, it's unlikely yeah. they'd see as much yeah. um, kind of growth growth there. So yeah, the the hip thrust is a great specific lift to to grow um to grow the glutes, even though it's not necessarily even training at long muscle lengths, which we're not completely confident on, but might be an important factor for them to grow maximally. For sure. And I think another thing to consider is that you can
1: always modify the exercises to make them even more specific to your goal. So um it's it's a fairly open question, but doing a partial at the end range of motion would take the Quad and adductor out almost completely for the hip thrust. So if you were like, all right, I'm trained, but I'm still worried about the adductor and quad in the hip thrust, which you know probably isn't the most sound worry. But if you're super worried about that and you're just like quadzilla, you know, power to you, I'm I envy you. But um <laughs> you could do partials at the the end range of a hip thrust and then almost totally negate any of the quad adductor action that you you might get at the bottom of the hip thrust because it's definitely not unloaded at the bottom. It's actually the highest amount of resistance is actually at the bottom of a hip thrust. So people often assume that um, it's inverted, but the reason why the hip thrust is a short dominant exercise is because we're much weaker in the shortened position. <clears throat> so that's why it's limited by that range of motion. But the resistance curve is actually a, a descending resistance curve where it starts hardest, not hardest because we're stronger there, but the resistance is highest at the top and then slightly goes down um,
0: as you, or highest at the bottom and then slightly goes down as you lock out. Yeah. So actually doing length and partials on the hip thrust is not a bad kind of thought to, for people to experiment with at least. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's, it's just going to get super heavy.
0: Yeah. So yeah, we, we actually, <laughs>
1: could,
0: yeah, we considered, um, so like, yeah,
1: Brett called me and then it was like, like, what, what could we do to, um, isolate the question with like one exercise? And they considered one, like, uh, you could create a uh, sort of like the prime does with like different levers, yeah. um, and, uh, get, more biased toward one position that way but you could also like you mentioned do partials at the bottom and partials at the top but i mean they got really strong like these untrained individuals got really strong in very short order um so even untrained you're going to be loading and i feel bad for the research assistant i was loading those plates i was like no no don't touch it it's all good you know i was putting on you know, two, three, and some people four plates on a hip thrust and people that have, you know, never seen the exercise, never done any exercise. So even an untrained, that's going to be a tall order with those partials. But with trained, I mean, you're going to be loading yeah. a ridiculous amount of plates and getting people also to stop. Like if you imagine doing it like a thrust, it's super awkward stopping like with the, in the partial Uh, at the bottom like getting to that mid-range it almost feels like super incomplete even more so than a squat or a leg press uh partial so just whether people are going to do in the real world might be a consideration too uh i think isolating that question um is totally fine study wise um but i think there's easier ways to do it like the multi-hip so i think with the multi-hip you could You don't have to deal with as much loading and so on, but there are some issues with it. Some people have the contention that a single leg exercise is less conducive to the um, glute max. I'm not super totally on board with that. I think you can isolate the question enough with the multi-hip where you can get very good answers, but there's always going to be
0: limitations to one study and the extrapolations you can make from it. Really well said. And I guess, I think we've done a fantastic job of kind of running through that study and kind of the practical take-homes and the limitations. And of course, the the other kind of discussion was super interesting, I think. And it's just a kind of, it sounds weird to say it's an exciting time, but it's kind of exciting. Like it's something new to sink our teeth into in terms of the range of motion question and do all muscles respond the same way. So it's super interesting and I'm excited for the future. Have you got any other studies that you're working on currently or anything that's in the mix that you can kind Mm -hmm. of tease us about? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so I'm interested, as I mentioned, in the mechanisms
1: of, of what's going on and why. So we have really no idea why. We have some ideas, but they're very weak as to why the length and position produces more growth. So I want to start teasing that apart with future studies looking at, you know, titan phosphorylation, titan isoforms between muscles and and so on. So I think my future work, my dissertation work, will likely get into mechanisms of mechanosensing, so sensing tension, and uh, get into mechanisms of like length mediated tension. So hopefully we can start, I I don't have any sort of like uh, grand beliefs that I'm gonna be able to tease them all apart from one study. We'd probably need like 100 studies to sort of tease those things apart, but I wanna start getting at that question. And it, to my knowledge, is actually, never been done before in humans with either partials or a prolonged stretch and so on. So we're throwing around a lot of ideas um, in terms of creating a study that can isolate that question that we can actually measure because where you can get biopsies, you're limited from it's mostly the bicep and the vastus lateralis. So um, we have to think of a, a cool design that can start getting at those mechanisms. So right now, I help out You know, other students get good at that molecular work uh, sense sensing tension, we have some bank tissue that I can get good at the assays and whatnot. So I'll have other studies that come out that are sort of secondary analyses that are related to like um, tension signaling and stuff like that. And then my dissertation work will hopefully be in something around. length mediated tension signaling so i'm excited for that and hopefully that could also be a longitudinal study We're like all right more length and length and tension signaling also correlated with more hypertrophy i don't know if i'm willing to do another you know longitudinal study where you know it's it's a definitely a headache for for a decent amount of time but uh in terms of like whether you want to get out of PhD. i definitely going to do a whole bunch of longitudinal studies in the future, but like finishing your PhD on time is a thing. So, right. we'll see if hopefully I can, you know, do everything I want to do, but yeah, that's definitely
0: my area of interest at least at the moment. Very cool. Amazing. And if people want to kind of keep up to date with yourself, your work, where should they head? Yeah, so as you know, I'm on Threads now, Threads team. Uh at Daniel Plotkin
1: and uh Instagram, same thing, at Daniel Plotkin. I'm on Twitter, but I don't really post. I follow a lot of researchers and stuff like that. I don't, Threads. you know. We don't need anyone anymore. They, they, they killed it. <laughs> so there's, there's literally no point in going on there
0: anymore. Um, and, yeah, I think those are the main places for sure. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I make sure that's linked and yeah, I'm enjoying threads. I'm enjoying like the difference and uh, although it's another thing to take my attention away from life, but (laughs) you know, know, that's social media for you. So yeah, I make sure those are linked in the bio below or the description and uh, you guys can make sure to keep up with Daniel and we'll catch you in the next episode. Take care.
2: Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't, though. It's reality, and we know how to do it, and we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight-week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You'll receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the mini-cut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The mini-cut movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.